The Friday Reporter launched in March of 2021 as a conversation with today's journalists and has expanded to include newsmakers, lawmakers, image makers, and just about anybody who's in the news or the news adjacent business. The podcast is in partnership with PR Daily and is part of the Big Wig Podcast Network. If you like the show, please hit the subscribe button to make sure you've got ready access to the latest conversation. And if you've got an idea for a great guest, don't forget to send your ideas to Lisa at FridayReporter.com. Well, hello, and thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter podcast. Today's episode is with, I think, one of the biggest DC stars there is. And I say that as she is my friend, but she is also one of the most impressive reporters here in Washington, DC. Anne-Marie Hordern is the host of Balance of Power. She is also, I mean, just omnipresent. She is in your, on the Bloomberg terminal and everywhere, breaking news all day long. And I say that with Thank you, thank you so much for being with me on a big, big news day. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. So, Anne-Marie, I mean, I say all that, and I mean it sincerely. You have just arrived back in the U.S. after having been covering other countries, other leaders, other remarkable people of the world, and you've arrived back just in time for (laughs) the 24 election, and obviously a very tumultuous political time here in Washington, D.C., yeah. <laughs> but before we get to all of that, I want you to talk to me a little bit about where, how you got started. How did you get into journalism? And, and how did you get back to Washington, D.C.? Well, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I've been back for, into the U.S. more than two and a half years now, a little over two and a half years. I'm not even originally from Washington. I'm from New York. So this was like a big move. Yeah. And I haven't been, I've never covered a U.S. election, presidential election, so closely. And I vaguely covered one through an NPR affiliate in 2012. So it's been years since I've seen U.S. politics really up close and personal. So I'm excited for that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I got started, I wanted to be a lawyer, and I started working for an NPR affiliate. And I was like, you know, I really love this. I want to keep putting a lot of my attention towards this. And I decided to scrap this plan I had to do a three-year undergrad and then a three-year law degree just so I could finish it all quickly. So your final BA year would be your first year of law school. Mm-hmm. And I said, let me just get, I was a history major mostly. I tapped on this extra journalism major because then I had time. But I was like, let me just explore this. So I started working for the BBC. I interned for Charlie Rose. I worked for the Bronx County Historical Society. And Everything just kept saying, pursue this. And I said, if I don't make it, I can always go back to law school. Of course. And it ended up working out. So I just kept on that track. And so uh, you were here in the U.S. for some time as a journalist. And then you went to Europe. Yeah, moved to Europe. um, And I went to London. Lived there for about eight years, a little over eight years. Wow. And it was really a great experience for me because it was this place where it could be a base to cover bigger stories. Sure. And what I ended up really owning was the OPEC beat, the oil cartel, Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. Yes. And it was wild for a few years because it expanded to include one Saudi Arabia's biggest foe in the market, Russia. So I started covering all these Gulf countries plus Russia, and I didn't just cover them anymore through this oil lens. I started covering other individuals, like, within their governments. Right. So I had a big focus on... Saudi Arabia, Iran, Russia, and this is where I really felt like I learned a lot about uh, journalism, but also about how the world works and how 
like a head, an everyday headline can impact oil markets, and then what does that mean for everyday people? Right. Um, yeah, so it was, it was a really great experience, and I think it set me up well for, sadly, set me up well for all the stories we are Everything experiencing today. Everything happening right now, for sure. So you were there, and you were with Bloomberg, and were you with other, another outlet at that time, or was it straight for Bloomberg? Always, Always with, with Bloomberg. Bloomberg. Oh, interesting. Okay, so you're, you come back to D.C., you've been here for two and a half years. Balance of Power, though, hasn't been two and a half years, so you have been doing reporting on a lot of different issues. What specifically have you been covering? So I mostly cover the White House okay. and also foreign policy. At Bloomberg, we really like the idea of intersection between policy, economics, and then the politics yeah. kind of around it. Sure. And not just domestic politics. And I think the past two years, it's really about international. Absolutely. Um, whether or not it's export controls vis-a-vis -vis China, if it's Russia's invasion of Ukraine and this entire sanctions regime that is now placed on the Russian economy. Mm -hmm. um, so this has been a big focus of mine. I thought I'd be covering taxes, <laughs> um, but <laughs> and everything plans. is so different. And so now you're the co-host of Balance of Power, which is uh, was originally a Washington, D excuse me, it was a New York-based show, and they moved it here to Washington D.C. And now it's at the end of the day, like after the market shuts down and after everybody gets a chance to digest what's happening still happening on Capitol Hill, because Capitol Hill almost never turns off. Yeah. And it's <laughs> guys, usually, it's like a late town, while New York's very much so an, an early town. Yeah, and it's, um, but the the move here to Washington, D.C. has really been, ex I mean, especially timely, because so much of what's happening here is affecting the markets, is affecting uh, international uh, relations and everything else. So Yeah, absolutely. Everyone has to pay attention to what's happening in Washington. When I was um, at the U.N. General Assembly in New York recently, Recently, someone quipped to me that the biggest risks used to be from around the world. And now, internationally, people say the biggest risks emanate from Washington, D.C. Interesting. And we really just saw this play out recently with the speaker vote. Yeah. You know, Washington paralysis, and people are trying to figure out what happens next. And if you're an international player, you really need to start thinking about how do you set yourself up for after the next presidential election? Is it going to be back to potentially a former President Trump or another Republican, or is it going to be another four years of what Biden's doing? Right. And that can have very different impacts. Oh, my gosh. And it's hard to think that it's going to be a whole 12 months from now when that happens because everything seems to be happening so fast. But before we get to that, because I think that that's a big piece of this conversation today, will you tell me, I know in the past you've talked to me a little bit about the difference between the U.S. media and European media. Um, and you've talked a little bit more about, I've seen it, obviously I've traveled myself, but you having been there and now coming back to the U.S., what would you say your biggest observation would be? I think international media is a little bit more boring by design. Mm -hmm. It really wants to be informative. While I didn't, I wasn't exposed as much to U.S. media when I was abroad because I would just watch what the local television was doing, whether I was in Europe or, you know, I watched a lot of Bloomberg. Sure. Um, when I came back here and I really started to dive into what the broadcast landscape felt like, it feels more entertainment. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel like the way, like, say, the BBC would spend 15 minutes on one subject. Sure, sure. That might be a little bit more niche. Mm -hmm. Maybe that gets a line. Mm -hmm. And it feels more entertainment-like and also more partisan. Yes. Depending on um, what channel you're watching or potentially maybe what journalists or not even journalists, what a commentator is watching. Mm -hmm. While it's definitely more boring <laughs> internationally. Yeah. And 
even in the UK, like when I feel like I became a journalist abroad, mm -hmm. in the UK you're under regulation of Ofcom, it's what it's called, the United oh, Kingdom. Interesting, yeah. So if you say something that's out of bounds, you can get a call from Ofcom. Mm -hmm. And if you have an election, so say the UK election cycle, you have to have a representative from every party. Every party must, must get fair coverage okay. on your network. Mm -hmm. And you have to keep track of how many times you're talking about labor or liberal Democrats or uh, the conservative, the Tory party. Mm -hmm. So you're constantly pushed to be as fair and balanced as possible. Which is probably not a terrible thing. I mean, honestly, but now it, we have all these curated news outlets. Um, we don't have to mention a lot of them because we're not here today to talk to, about any of them. But the one point of view that I think I take away from when I watch Bloomberg is a lot of the lens that you come to these conversations through is how the news affects, as you mentioned, the intersection between uh, the economy and, and then Wall Street and then the world. And that, I think, helps you with making sure that you are hearing from all sides in the conversations. Even your political panels are balanced with an R and a D. I mean, you try to make sure that you do that. You thread the needle, I think, really well there. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, I think what we want to bring our viewers is just facts, and then they can make up their own minds. Mm -hmm. But also, too, what impresses me always about, especially when I watch you do the show, is in between, because um, I have done your show, in fairness to the audience, and I think they probably know that now, um, you have the terminal, the Bloomberg terminal, terminal, which is, to those people who are not familiar, I think most people that listen <laughs> it's a probably machine. are, but, it is, it's a, but it's, a, um, it's an information source, a tremendous information source, that you are constantly seeing news as it comes in. So as the story is, on, as the, the show is unfolding, stories are coming in and you're asking for real-time reaction to what's going on and I love that. Oh yeah, it's so much fun. It's probably not as much fun for the guests, <laughs> so thanks for keeping uh, rolling with the punches. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's an incredible system yeah, and the wealth of data and information. And you have a great intersection between not only New York but also internationally. You yourself have had some of the most tremendous guests people that you have sought out and you have landed as, as, I mean, Janet Yellen is the one that sort of sticks out in my mind. Like, there are not a lot of folks like yourself here inside Washington, D.C. that are going out and landing these gigantic guests and interviews. Tell me about how, I mean, tell me your process when you sit down with someone of that esteem. There must be a lot of homework to do. Yeah, I approach interviews with a lot of background research and you kind of want to understand, like, what do you want to get out of this interview? Mm -hmm. Obviously, every journalist wants to break news, but you also want to make sure you're, inf you're informing your viewers. Right. And so, you know, you'll see a lot of an individual's, like, past interviews they've given. I'll reread speeches. For that one, one of my particular interviews with the Treasury Secretary was at the G7, and we were on the edge of the debt ceiling crisis. Right. And I went back to some comments that were made public later when she was at the Fed. So how she approached other crises when it came to the debt ceiling in the past. And, you know, just making sure you know everything she's ever said on this subject. Sure. And that's these moments where, even if you're not going to break news, you know, she's very much also always a Fed chair, how yes. I feel. Yeah. Which their entire job is they never want to implicate and move markets. Absolutely not. Um, so you want to make sure you can get at, like, the nuance of maybe what, what she's saying. Mm -hmm. What would you say, if you had to look back, is there a particular interview or a particular story that stands out as one that you're especially proud of? There's a story that 
is personally, I think, the best story I've ever done at Bloomberg, and it was never meant to be a story. Mm -hmm. It was a personal journey I ended up writing about, and it had to do with the fall of Kabul mm -hmm. and a colleague's family that was stuck in Herat, Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And me and a group of individuals at Bloomberg spearheaded this operation. It was through calling Intel contacts, calling other contacts around the world. Um, and then we had the support of our founder, Michael Bloomberg, to end up getting this family out of Afghanistan. I went and met them in Islamabad, and then I traveled with them to Europe. Mm -hmm. So it was like three to four weeks that I spent with them, but since the fall of Afghanistan, I had spent months working on this project. It actually became my full focus, and work almost became the second job. Sure, sure. But no one really knew what I was working on, and then I kind of disappeared for a month. And this is almost right after I moved here. Yes. And I wrote about it last summer for the one-year anniversary of the fall of Kabul and talked about the lens through their eyes, actually the bigger growing refugee crisis we have. Right. Um, because at that point, it wasn't just Afghans. It was also Ukrainians that right. were looking for homes. And right. something the head of the UN Refugee Council really stuck to me. He said, it's amazing that people care about Ukrainians, but humanity cannot be selective. Right. You cannot care about some people and not others. Mm -hmm. And I think when you move in a fast news cycle, that does tend to happen. It does. It does. There are so many journalists that I've talked to that find themselves writing a story and working on a story, and then as soon as the story cools down a little bit, they're moving on to the next one. Um, there are a few news outlets, though, that recently have started to make sticking around part of their priority. Um, and I, I, this story, and I remember reading it and following it long before you and I had met, and I'm going to make sure that I include that in the notes because I think it now, even more than ever, is incredibly relevant. I mean, that story is one that I think illustrates for people what it is that human lives and the humanitarian issue that's happening really all across the globe right now in a lot of different places really comes comes to life in the storytelling that you did there. So um, that really, you can tell that that was a project not only of personal pride, but one that you were really um, very happy to, to cover and successfully cover in a way that was positive. Yeah, and I'm usually, I sit in TV. I do write a lot, but I am a broadcast journalist, so this was something that I put in the magazine. It felt like the best place for really me to not express my voice, but the reporting I also had over the course of months. Mm -hmm. And when I sat down to write it, I did some more reporting as well and spoke to like former contacts in Pakistan. So yeah, this was uh, something special for me and for sure the best thing I've ever done at yeah. Bloomberg. And it's pretty incredible to have the weight of the company. Support, well, that, says so, well that says so much about the company that you work for, too, that you had the full weight of the organization behind you in that coverage as well, which doesn't always happen. Um, that's probably a, one of the biggest frustrations that people have when they talk about where they are, if they're still, some have more support than others, is the, probably the way I would put it. So uh, so what's next for Anne-Marie? Like, tell me, so 24, you're obviously going to cover this big election that's coming up that's going to be... Um, on all accounts, it's going to be incredibly negative. It's going to be incredibly expensive. So it's oh, yeah. going to be very interesting to follow. But So tell me what you're looking forward all to. All my foreign friends are always so shocked about how much U.S. elections cost. Oh, they are yeah. always so shocked. Mm. And um, I'm like, yeah, it's, it's just bigger in America. Bigger country, bigger economy, bigger stakes. I'm one of these people that I see all the polls and I always read them with a grain of salt because mm -hmm. it is still not even a year out. Yeah. And so much can change. And mm -hmm. I think most Americans make their decision the 
when they're in that voting booth, at least the ones that decide the election, when you look at how, where past elections were won and lost, it's a small amount of people. Yeah. I was looking at Michigan again from 2020 with Hillary Clinton and Trump, mm -hmm. and she lost by just over 10,000 votes. Yeah. Those so, are the people that came out at the very last minute. You'd I, like to, you'd think, right? The ones yeah. that are making choices. So, what is the price of gas in October, November? Where are we in the world? How are people feeling about their job prospects? Where is inflation? Mm -hmm. I think that I think that's how most people make their decisions, which is why I love working at Bloomberg because it's the intersection of all of, all of these stories. Absolutely. Um, earlier this month, I had a guest that was a pollster who talked quite a bit about that, and he said that over the course of the last six to eight years, there has been a real um, uh, emotion, emo like it's an emotional vote. People felt either very strongly for Hillary Clinton or they felt very strongly for Trump or they felt very strongly for Obama and they were movement candidates. Whereas this time around, that's not necessarily the case. Nobody can say that they're not an insider. Everyone has served in some role in the government, right? And so that's where he was saying that that six to eight percent um, hike of people that have come out are exhausted. They've seen no change, not from the Republicans or the Democrats. And so unless there is something really tremendous that happens, they may very well stay home. And that's another variable that could really come into play as we're making decisions and we're seeing what happens in 24. And also, it's just a few states. There's really only a few states we need to focus on. Everything else, you have an idea where they're going to vote. Yeah. Why, why spend your time in New York? Mm -hmm. or California. You have an idea of where you need to push your resources. Yeah. I think Michigan at this moment is such an important and fascinating state. There's like two big stories happening mm -hmm. that can impact either the Republican or the Democrat. There's the auto strikes, right? Um, which we've seen rank and file households. Actually, Trump has clawed into some of Biden's lead there, at least yeah. Bloomberg morning consult polling, mm -hmm. but also what is going on in the Middle East. Um, there's a big sector of Muslims in Michigan. And NBC News had a story over the weekend saying that some of these people are saying, I'm just not gonna show up for Joe Biden. Mm. And so that's interesting. This is such an important state mm -hmm. for the Democratic Party. Right. And it really depends on where we are in the world, September, October, November of next year. Yeah. So when you wake up in the morning, there's a lot of news to read. Um, and obviously that all goes back to, you know, as we prepare and think about what 24 looks like. But is there one or two, obviously the Bloomberg Terminal is your first Bible. That's the Bible for you. We got up in the morning and you sort of... And you, my whole phone all is of just that. alerts. <laughs> but is there something in particular? Is there some... You don't necessarily have to call out a particular journalist, but is there something in particular that you do that helps you prepare best for your day as you get started? Because I know you do early morning radio. I know you do the, the five o'clock show. You're busy all day long reporting. What do you feel like gives you the best insight to what's happening? The first thing I do is pull up the Bloomberg Terminal because mm -hmm. I'll just have at the top readership spikes of stories people are caring about while I was sleeping. Mm -hmm. I do check Twitter mm -hmm. and I'll read a little bit of Political's Daybook. I'll read Jake Sherman's Punchbowl. Mm -hmm. And then I also look at all the major newspapers, but I still also look at the Financial Times. Interesting. I like to see what they're saying about the United States. Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting point. I hadn't even thought about that. But that's a good one to, to think. And not a lot of folks really check in there, but smart. Um, so, all right, when you're not doing news, what keeps you busy, like in your personal life? Is there anything in particular that's 
stands out? Do you like, I know you like to travel. I love to travel, yeah. yeah. I think everyone does though, especially after COVID. Yeah. Um, family, friends. Yeah. Um, it's been fun being back in the US because I'm so close to New York and that's where a lot of my friends and family are. Yeah. Um, I like to work out when there's time. <laughs> <laughs> there hasn't been a lot of that, yeah. DC is a great city for running. Yes. Um, and then if I'm like really stressed out, once in a while I play piano. I grew up playing. I'm not great anymore, okay. but it's something that totally relaxes meditative, me. Meditative yeah. process, yeah, part of that. That's fantastic. Okay, so as we get to the end of the conversation today, I always ask for a recommendation for someone for a future guest. I have a few. Okay, good. That's good. <laughs> How many do you want? As many as you like. I mean, I keep a running list, and the list then obviously is it's not mandatory. No hard feelings if people can't make it. Obviously, there's a lot of news to be covering, but... Tell me who you think I should talk to. So I have one colleague in Washington, D.C., and I love the lens he approaches stories. He covers things like CFIUS okay. at Treasury. He yep. covers national security. But he is a vet. He was a Marine. He was deployed in Iraq. Mm -hmm. So the way he looks at, say, the defense budgets, he's always on the Hill, or the yep. way he looks at foreign policy, he has a special lens that is very distinctive than anyone else's experience in the newsroom. Interesting. Um, and he also talks about veteran stories. So his name is Daniel Flatley. Okay. I think he'd be great for the podcast. Okay. I have another colleague who is German-American, and I always followed her work at Bloomberg when I was based in London because my show in London was at 6 a.m. Okay. When I wasn't traveling, I had a, sh had a mm -hmm. show as well. And she was always breaking news where markets would whipsaw. And this really? was during the height of the Trump administration's dealings with China mm -hmm. and this whole tariff war. Yeah. And markets would go huge to the upside or the downside. And it was always late at night in the U.S., but of course, right before my 6 a.m. London show. Oh, wow. And the whole show would then be changed. Yeah. And her name is Jenny Leonard. So. Okay. She's a great journalist, used to cause me a lot of stress <laughs> uh, when I was in London. And then I have one more colleague who is based in Brussels. Okay. And we both cover a lot of the same stories, but she's Brussels-based and I'm Washington-based. Mm -hmm. And her name is Maria Tadeo. Okay. Um, and she has some fantastic reporting about Ukraine I and Russia that. as well. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you, thank you. That's fantastic. No, I will reach out to all of them. Um, Thank you, Anne-Marie, so Thanks much. Thanks for having me. so much fun, and I'm so grateful for your time. I cannot wait to watch and follow you during all the stuff that's going to unfold in 24. So thanks again for being my guest. Wish me luck. Yeah, good <laughs> luck. <laughs> well, there you have it, another episode of the Friday Reporter Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. I love having this show. I love you to be part of it. Thanks again. Thanks to PR Daily for being a partner, and thanks to the folks at Big Wig Podcast for letting us be part of their network. See you soon. Mm -hmm.